What are cryptocurrencies? Hey, hey, hey. What are NFTs? A non-fungible token. Time to buy Bitcoin. Bitcoin just seems like a scam. What's up, what's up, what's up, what's up, what's up? Bitcoin! Hello, everyone. Welcome to On The Ledger Podcast. This is your substitute host, JJ Joe, coming to you from Paris. Balaji Srinivasan is our guest today. He is known for pushing the boundaries of the length of long-form podcasts. His recent appearance on Lex Friedman Podcast clocked a staggering eight hours and nearly broke Lex in the process. <laughs> the reason for these long-form conversations is very simple. Balaji knows a lot, and he's a multidisciplinary thinker. He has expertise in engineering, cryptocurrency, biomedicine, machine learning and AI, and entrepreneurship, and much more. He is a modern-day polymath, and he's a very well-rounded thinker who's ahead of his time. He draws broad strokes for where our societies are going to go. Today, our CXO Ian Rogers has the chance to sit down with Blagi. They're talking about Blagi's book, The Network State, and the book provides an alternative way to organize our societies based on cryptography and the network. Without further ado, let's jump in. So I will, uh, given the time constraints, I'll try to be efficient. I, I'm, 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 I'm sort of two hours from the end of your epic, uh, you know, Lex Friedman uh, piece. So we'll, 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 come, we'll come in significantly shorter than that. Hopefully that'll be uh, you know, efficient for everybody. But Balaji, thank you so much for, for taking time to talk to us. Um, you know, I, I've, I've listened to you a lot and I, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but I feel like you spend a lot of time trying to explain these concepts to people that are uh, less than technical. Um, you know, for us, we have an audience that's quite crypto savvy. Um, so what I'd like to do is to try to, you know, get the, the thesis of the network state out for people, um, you know, who are crypto savvy and, and to really get a sense of, um, you know, what role you think, um, you know, digital assets, digital identity play in the future of humanity. Well, and, um, and we don't have to start. That's not an open question to start with. I yeah. just wanted to frame it, frame it a bit. I actually, if you don't mind, I'd, I'd love to, sure. to just start, you know, a, a little bit of, you know, who, who are you? Um, and, you know, I feel like in, in the interviews I've listened to, you know, I, I know a lot about what you think. Um, you know, I know a little bit less about, you know, who you are and, 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 and why you think the way you do. So just just briefly, you know, who, who are you and, and, and how did you get to this place? Sure. So I actually, you know, I, I try to actually keep a lot of personal information. I mean, the thing is nowadays, uh, privacy is important, right? And I think that we're probably the last generation that will use our real names and faces online. Um, you know, I believe in the pseudonymous economy. And I've talked about that. AI avatars are getting really good. Real-time speech and other you know, stuff is getting good. With crypto, you can use digital signatures to prove who you are. And in the metaverse, you can be whoever you want to be. And with AR glasses, people can even see holograms of somebody and they don't necessarily need to see the real person. And seeing the real person may be like seeing somebody without their shirt off, you know? Um, like it'll be actually a relatively infrequent thing for relatively high trust people, like going and hanging at the beach with somebody, right? So, um, you know, with that said, like, you know, basically my background, you know, I, um, I, 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 I got my PhD in electrical engineering from Stanford. Uh, so BSMS PhD, electrical engineering, MS chemical engineering. Um, I taught CS and stats there for a few years, uh, like computational genomics, advanced bioinformatics, kind of the intersection of genetic circuits and stats and so on. 
founded a genomics company. Um, we sold that later. Uh, became an angel investor, early investor in Bitcoin and other cryptocurrencies. Joined Anderson Harvard's, helped set up what are now their bio and crypto funds. Uh, turned around one of our portfolio companies, sold that to Coinbase, became CTO of Coinbase, and um, and tweeted, uh, and <laughs> also you know wrote a, wrote a, I guess you know what is now a best-selling book uh, on the network state, um, and that's like kind of a quick summary. But that's just you know who I am, you know how I got to this point. In many ways, and I think I'm kind of I don't know. Try to live a very boring personal life. Um, you know, some people who are the most interesting man in the world, and you know they, they've got this amazing Instagram, Instagramifiable life. You know, it's waterfalls today, and they're snorkeling, and look at this amazing sunset and this these cliffs and all the type of stuff. And that's not me at all. Like essentially, uh, you know, what's really, you know, what's really exciting to me, you know what I love? And actually this is a good practice. If you're ever doing any data analysis, okay. Um, what you want to do is have a piece of paper next to you. And before you hit enter to generate your histogram or, or your histogram or scatter plot, cause those are like, you know, a 1d summary of data and a 2d summary of data or any other plot, you should draw what you expect to see. Okay, and the reason is, then when you hit enter, you compare that until against what you your prediction, because otherwise you can sort of fool yourself to being like, oh yeah, I expected that. Oh, yeah, I, I knew it, that. right? I knew it, right? It's sort of like you don't look at the answer in the back of the book before you attempt it. So that to me is way cooler than seeing like the Eiffel Tower or something like that. It's like, oh, I did predict that it was going to be normal looking, but it has a tail over here due to the fact that it had like kind of a non-normal. And that's exactly what I saw. How awesome is that? Right. That's the kind of stuff that I like. Okay. I think that uniqueness is, it's actually the reason I asked the question because, um, you know, what I find, uh, from listening to you speak and, and seeing you tweet, uh, and, and, and reading what you've written, um, is that you know you're you're quite unique at this moment in time in my view in that you know if you if you read someone like Yuval Harari or, or Ray Dalio which which I also do um, I think that they have a, a great read of of history and they're you know humanists or knowledgeable about finance or or many other things but you're quite unique in that you have this deep understanding of the technology as well so I think that 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 intersection of someone who you know really knows their history thinks deep about the arc of humanity. Um, but also is is deeply technical competent is is relatively rare. So my curiosity is, you know, and how did you become that person? And you know, your your interests, uh, what you just explained, you know, what a fun Saturday night sounds like to you is is one explanation of that. Um, but I was just curious if there are any other you know any other insights there into into you know how or why you became this person that that kind of has these these two things. One is it it seems to me uh, you know a deep interest in the in the overall the long term arc of humanity. Um, but also somebody who's deeply technical. Yeah. So um, basically, uh, I think the short version is history is how you win the argument. And the uh, longer version is you can't just like, you can't just learn to code. You have to have to, you know, like have something that you want to do, right? Even if it's as simple as I want to analyze this file and generate some graphs, or I want to write a script that will, um, transform this image or something like that, right? You need to have something that you want to do with the program because that's the difference between just learning a bunch of disconnected words and forming full sentences and communicating with another human being, 
right? You know, just like getting a French English dictionary is one thing, but actually trying to get a waiter to not roll their eyes at you in France is another, another level yeah. of, you know, confidence or whatever, right? In, in, in French. Um, and so, uh, so in the same way with history, history is a way to win the argument because most people, you know, don't, don't understand how we got to the current political dispensation we have. It's, um, you know, if you roll the camera back further, why is this building where it is? Why is this thing named the way it is? More generally, why is this, this belief in people's heads? Why, uh, you know, why is this political structure the way it is? And there's the, obviously there's the, there's an elementary school version of history that folks have that, that is helpful, but you, you can go way deeper than that. Um, and in a sense, history is kind of like astronomy. You know why? I talk about this in the book, but with astronomy, you have this, you know, telescope and, you know, or, or, a, you know, not just like a telescope you look at with your eyes, but these, you know, like the, the giant telescopes from the movie contact, like the, uh, and some, sometimes like space telescopes, like the Hubble telescope, and they're just gazing out into the stars and you're seeing all these distant star systems and you look very far out in space and you can see that the laws of physics permit weird combinations. Like, wow, that's what like a two star system looks like. That's what a black hole looks like. Those are consistent with the laws of physics. Amazing, right? I wouldn't have predicted that, but now I can check it like plugs in. It seems to work. And in the same way with history, we take our telescope and we point it backwards in time and we look at the 100 billion people who've ever lived and the configurations of these human beings in these really surprising configurations. For example, you know this concept called sortition? Have you ever heard of that? No. S-O-R-T. So there's this great book called uh, Against Elections, The Case for Democracy, Okay, which basically makes the case that representative democracy is not what he thinks of as democracy. Actually, the ancient Greeks and others used selection, um, random selection called sortition, where they just, it was like a lottery and whoever won or lost, if you, if you think of it that way, uh, had to lead the community, which right. means- Socrates. Yeah, it's almost like the you cut, I choose, right, of splitting a cake. If anybody could be leader, that means a very high virtue society. It means that- um, you know, you basically, anybody could become leader tomorrow. So you treat them like that, right? It, it seems stupid in some ways, but it's also kind of interesting in terms of how it, it takes away all campaigning. It takes away lots of that type of stuff, right? Um, it's a little bit like how in Silicon Valley, people will, uh, generally be nice to others because you never know who's going to be the next like unicorn founder or whatever. Right. Um, and now more generally in technology, Silicon Valley is not even really a place anymore. So the thing is, that's like a configuration of human beings that worked at some point in the past. This remarkable thing that you wouldn't have guessed because we're only living one life, right? It's like, you know, by, by studying history, you benefit from the 100 billion lives that happened before us, these orbits. And from them, you might be able to discern or glean certain patterns or arcs that you can get a sense of, okay, things will probably rotate in this way because our initial conditions are very similar to how they rotated here 300 years ago. See what I'm saying, right? Yep. So, so that is how I think of history as sort of like the astronomy of the past, you know, like the, the, like a very approximate physics of the past. Got it. And, and you know, the way that you, the way that you talk though, it's interesting because you're, you're saying that, you know, you know, the history and history is a way to win the argument because 
if you you know if you can communicate that history, then you can you can give people you know the the analogies and and the comparisons and the way that the future might rhyme with the past. At the same time, another thing I've noticed about you know the way that you speak and write is is you really aren't afraid to speak to a technical audience. You know, you use you use analogies like GitHub. You say things like RM minus RF. You talk about <laughs> having root. Right. And yes. and I I'm, I'm left wondering. Um, you know, is that is that just because that's how you talk, or do you in some, are you in some ways trying to enlist the the technical class? And I don't mean that in a negative way at all. I mean right. that in the way that if you believe that the technical class is in some ways the the future leaders of the world, then it makes a lot of sense to speak to them in the language that that they understand. Is that intentional, or is that just the way you talk? Well, uh, it's a good question. Um, I think it's probably in some sense just the way I talk. Maybe maybe subconsciously to. Uh, you know, something like GitHub, for example, I don't know how many users it has now, but when it crossed, I think, you know, let me just see that. Um, I think it has more than 10 million users, right? Um, so, okay, wow, 90 million active users, 90 wow. million people using GitHub. When GitHub started, I never thought that you'd have 90 million people who understood what a hash is, right? A cryptographic hash function is a fairly complex, I mean, most people don't understand sine and cosine, okay? Those are continuous functions where, you know, f of x, you know, is close to f of x plus dx for small values of dx, right? And a cryptographic hash function has exactly the opposite property where a small perturbation of dx leads to an f of x very different than f of x plus dx. And that actually turns out to be crucial. And, you know, there's other, like, basically just defining even what a cryptographic hash function is and explaining what every git commit is doing seemed to me to be this impossibly technical thing that only a i remember people were like yeah who cares about git come on dude only like the most random programmers in 2008 when this started right 90 million people okay now is every are every single one of them actually understand how the thing works no they probably just see the alphanumeric stuff and they just think it's just some permalink, you know, like, like, a, the, you know, the URL has some just alphanumeric stuff. They don't really understand what it is. They're just using it through the web interface or something. Maybe, but I wouldn't be surprised if at least 10 million understood it, maybe more than that. That's actually a fairly large group of people, much larger than you might think a priori. It's, it's not the majority of the world. Obviously there's 7 billion people. Um, in a sense, it's 1% of the world, right? But it's a pretty important 1% of the world. And it's like larger in absolute numbers than you might think, you know? Even a physics textbook, it's, you know, th maybe the market for that is 50 million people, right? It's actually bigger than you might think. It's like less than 1% of the world, but it's like a big thing. So, so just in absolute numbers, that technical class might be larger than one might think. That's A. B is that technical class is a global class. And, you know, in a sense, one of the reasons that physicians and engineers came from India and China and other places to the U.S. is their skills were portable across borders, unlike, let's say, a background in law or a background in media. If you spoke with an accent or, you know, you understood, I don't know, Chinese law and you tried to practice in the U.S., it's totally different premises, everything is architected differently, you know, maybe Hong Kong would translate because it's got like British common law, so it's closer, but you know, laws about the details, right? Whereas the details of physics work across borders. They're, they're, they're space and time invariant, the laws of physics, you know, we obey the laws of physics in this household, right? So that's the other aspect is the technical class is inherently a global class, you know, where you're speaking to 
a fairly large absolute group. And then the third is it's a rapidly growing class because, you know, there's always people with keyboards who are now defining themselves in this way, you know, where folks, you know, that were split by space and time historically might not have thought of themselves as computer people or tech people, but they could be Persian or Brazilian or Japanese, and they could all geek out on something together, right? And we see that in our tech companies. And there's not in a naive way, but there is a good aspect of cosmopolitanism, not exactly we are the world, but um, collaboration across borders, peace between men, you know, that kind of stuff, right? Which is actually good, peace and trade. So all of those, I think, are reasons that I do it. And then perhaps the most important, though, is for a precision analogy. You know, sometimes really the technical analogy is the way to go. And just like, you know, you, you can make a choice. And there's definitely some people who choose to, for lack of a better term, dumb it down, you know, go to a lowest common denominator, try for something that just uses, you know, there's something called like simple English Wikipedia. Have you seen that? Right. Simple English Wikipedia. It's just like simple English is just like a, I think it's a restricted set of like a thousand words and everything needs to be, you know, the man put the apple on the table, you know, that, the that Dr. Seuss or like yeah, 50 but, words but, and the cat in the hat or something. Right. Right. For those people for whom English is a second language or third language and they don't really, they can't, you know, they won't be able to read Shakespeare. It's too complicated or, you know, they're, they're just English learners, but simple English, they could get fairly far. There are folks who have had a success off something like that, or even guys who, you know, do this sort of, um, I mean, memes travel really far because they're just, you know, the emotion of surprise looks the same in every country, right? If you just have a human expression, you can kind of get what the meme is about, even if the, the label on it is different, right? But I just, you know, I, I kind of go to the, I should say opposite extreme exactly, but I express things in a way that I think makes the maximum amount of sense and that often involves technical analogy or, or a big word or something like that, only because you've got 280 characters and you fit it into that. So those are the four reasons. A, that technical class is large in absolute numbers. B, it's inherently international. Um, C, this is often like the precise way to, to say something. And there's probably a fourth that I forgot, but those are three. Uh, that's, I just find that interesting. So thank you. I want to. I want to. Given that you know we have significantly less time than sure. uh, than, than with Lex, I want to jump. Yeah. Into, I want to get into the network state really quickly here. But Great. I want to. For for our audience, I think it would also be helpful though to know you know how, how and when and why crypto for you. Um, you know. I think sure. It's yeah. It, I mean, I was go ahead for sure. No, no, that, go that. You you get the question. What's what's, yeah. what's what's the starting point for you, and and also why? Like what you know. Obviously, you you know you you have a you have a deep. Um, you know, both understanding and, and, you know, I wouldn't even say, well, I, I want to hear from you. What, what, so when, when, why, when, how, and why crypto? Sure. So 20, um, 2010, I think is when I first heard about Bitcoin. Um, if I go back in email or whatever. Um, but, uh, the, it was, I think it was, it was really after the recovery from the Silk Road crash that I really paid attention because it was like, okay, this thing dropped 90%, but it came back. That's actually pretty unusual, you know, for something to come back from that. And it's quietly recovering over the course of like late 2011, early 2012. And so I got heavily into it in 2012 and wrote up some notes and, you know, for a Stanford course. And what was the motivation for you? Like, what, what did you, what was the sort of the, you know, the... the well, of uh, course, there's the technical coolness. It's programmable money. 
you know, it's something where you can treat it as part of your infrastructure in the same way that it's like file storage, it's like a system resource, you know, like memory. Um, so there's a lot of technical things about it that are cool. But it's also something where um, it was it was freedom. At the time, you're seeing, you know, for example, Cyprus had the bail-ins, right, um, that were happening. I remember that was a big thing in 2013, but, like, savings were confiscated. Uh, and, you know, basically here, you know, the the sorry for your loss is with the banks and the original, you know, this is where they're getting cents on the dollar where the insolvent banks, you know, just lost customer funds. It's called bailed in, you know, bail in, right? Yep. And, um, you know, so this this kind of thing ha ha was happening even 10 years ago and just keeps happening because the financial system is sort of being like, in a sense, tottering for a long, long time. And that's the reason that cryptocurrency was built. And the question is, can we build it fast enough that it can can handle the load of this collapsing financial system, right? And uh, and I think it's probably another two cycles before we get there. But then it just sort of like by 2020, the internet was like ready to take over after the COVID crash. Probably by 2030, the crypto economy will be like ready to take over. Um, and uh, you know, we'll, I think I think that's about right. But we'll see. Well, and let's we'll come back to the predictions uh, a little later on. But let's jump into the 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 concept of the network state for people who sure. haven't uh, who haven't read it up to this point. You have you have you know you have very cogent summaries. The networkstate.com, by the way, yes. I would recommend for anyone who hasn't read the book to read it at the networkstate.com because it's a, a bit of a, a living document and all of the yep. annotations are are fantastic. So I appreciate the way that you've released this book as well. You said at the beginning, a, a, a best-selling author. I'm not sure how you measure that when, uh, you know, when ah. I've read your, when I've read your book on, uh, on, on your website. Well, but that's um, funny you say that I'll tell you the exact metric cause I'm very quantitative. I'll speak to the technical audience. Um, so there's basically two bestseller lists. There's the NYT bestseller list and the Wall Street Journal bestseller list. The NYT bestseller list is actually fake. Most people won't tell you this because they're authors that want to rank on it. Why is it fake? Well, they actually had to admit in court that it was editorial content, not objective factual content. It's actually the NYT bestseller list is like more like a well seller list. These are selling well and they just pick the ones they like. Okay. So it's more like Google rankings than a true, you know, ranking by sales. Okay. By contrast, NPD Bookscan goes directly to the Wall Street Journal. That's just literally rank ordering. And so nonfiction ebooks, best selling books, uh, you know, weekended July 9th, that was number two. Nonfiction combined, number four, right? Not bad. Number two ebooks overall, right? And also at one well, that's point- that's not taking we were, into consideration those of us that read it on your website, is it? Yeah, exactly. That's just Kindle sales, right? And so the thing about it is normally there's lots of games played with bestseller lists, but this was an ebook. It was totally self-published. I ignored all establishment outlets. There are no bulk orders because you can only buy one copy at a time of a Kindle, right? And I even gave it away free online, still a Wall Street Journal bestseller, which thing's pretty good, right? That's right. like- non-drugated metal, basically, you know, so to speak, right? You know, and look, I don't actually, to, to be honest, I don't actually care about sales. It was nice to notch bestseller, just like another check the box or whatever, right? But really, you know, even I'd much rather have a million person, one network state than a million sales of the book on the network state, right? So like eyes on the right prize, and that means building a pipeline of them. So what is a network state to your question? I sent over a GIF Maybe you can project it. Do you see that link that I sent, right? The networkstate.com front slash networkstate.gif, okay? And uh, that shows what the concept is. It's basically, think of a social network that isn't just digital. 
It's a social network that represents a community. And it crowdfunds territory all over the world, a ranch here, a cul-de-sac here, an apartment building here, maybe a small town here, networks them together into a joint structure that has a population, annual income, and real estate footprint comparable to that of a legacy state, okay? Once you start thinking about this, you're like, okay, I could knit territory together, like you know, big chunk of territory in Wyoming, a big chunk of territory in, I don't know, Brazil or something like that, sum it all together, you could get something that's as big as Estonia, for example, just spread over the world with the number of people of Estonia just spread over the world. It's just like Bitcoin's a distributed currency. The network state is a concept for a distributed country. Uses many of the same principles like it's hard to invade and it's hard to nuke because it's spread around the world. You can encrypt parts of it where pieces of the network state or a network state can be left off the map and you can only see it if you have the right NFT or the private key, for example, right? And, uh, you know, the decentralization means that people from many different countries can sort of try it out and, you know, then if they don't like it, then they can kind of, you know, exit and so on. So it's like fluid and it's built for growth, right? And finally, of course, you can start it from a laptop and I've got this GIF here, which shows a visual of how you could go from one person with a concept to 10, to 100, to 1,000, 10,000, 100,000, eventually a million people around the world who think of themselves as part of a new kind of polity that crowdfunds territory and lives together. And eventually, and this is where it comes in the state part, eventually achieves diplomatic recognition from pre-existing states. So now nothing I've said there is technologically impossible. And there's many individual things where, you know, I can talk about, you know, their stopping criteria. For example, you might not go all the way to the the state, you might stop at a what I call a network union, like a purely digital thing that does collective action, or a network archipelago, where you use that collective action to crowdfund territory and live together. Going all the way to a state and getting recognition, maybe one out of a thousand or ten thousand startup societies will do that. Just like Y Combinator's founded, you know, funded like three thousand companies, and there's like five that are worth more than ten billion dollars, right? It's like Stripe, Airbnb, Coinbase, maybe. I think Dropbox, I forget what the other one was, right? Um, and the, the, inter uh, the internet makes the cost of starting them very low and the cost of failure also low. So you can you can get sort of N number of them. And, and, and if only a few of them succeed, that's exactly. still, you know, it still changes the, changes the course of history. That, that's exactly right. And so now for the first time, we have a peaceful way to start not just new companies, but new countries. And this is actually very important from just an egalitarian perspective because we take for granted nowadays this amazing thing, which is, you know, somebody from, you know, a Nigerian American, I believe, uh, founded Calendly, right? Uh, the founder of Calendly was born in Nigeria, it's a billion dollar company, you know, founder of Flipkart, born in India, billion dollar company, founder of WeChat, uh, you know, or, or Tencent, founder of Alibaba, born poor in China, multi, multi-billion dollar company, right? Founder of Mercado Libra from South America, billion dollar company. We take for granted that somebody from anywhere who's smart and hardworking can become the CEO of a multi-billion dollar internet startup. That's actually a really new thing over the last really 20, even 10 years. That's an amazing thing, right? Kareem, giant exit in the Middle Eastern tech ecosystem, right? Um, you know, Skype, giant exit in Estonia, which had just gotten independence from uh, uh, the Soviet Union, like just like about 10 years earlier, right? You know, just think about that. Like in 1991, they got independence. By 2003, I think they were doing Skype, right? And to go from communism 
to incredibly successful international capitalism in 10 years, 12 years, is bananas, right? Totally so, agree. By the way, my wife is Estonian, so we spend a lot of time there. So, yeah, wonderful. I know it well. Yeah. Wonderful country. And you know, I'm actually one of the, the first three Estonian e-residents, along with the, with the, um, Tim Draper and Steve Jorvetson, who actually also happens to be of Estonian descent. So big fan of Estonia, amazing country. Um, but just think about that, going from literally under Soviet communism to 12 years later, starting Skype, and then a few more years later, selling it for billions of dollars. Pretty legit, right? So we are used to that kind of opportunity. Anybody can become CEO, founder of an internet startup anywhere in the world with internet connection, right? Uh, and so then the next thing is, look, only 2% of the world can, under the current rules, become president of the United States. You have to be 35 years old, native born, right? And there's, there's other criteria, you know, and let's say it's about 2%, okay? Um, if you take 35-year-old native born Americans, probably roughly in that ballpark. 4% of the world are Americans, let's say half are, you know, in, in that ballpark. So 98% of the world cannot actually, you know, become president of the U.S. In fact, it's much easier to become a billionaire or a tech billionaire than president of the U.S. There's thousands of billionaires. There's only 50, there's thousands of billionaires around today. There's only 50 U.S. presidents, less than 50 U.S. presidents around ever, right? And only one at a time today. So it's only a thousand X easier to become a billionaire than to become U.S. president, right? But we want to actually innovate in governance as well. Why? Because governance is upstream of a lot of other things. And it wasn't thought that you could peacefully innovate on governance, but Satoshi showed that you could, at least on currency, which is a crucial breakthrough. And now maybe we can innovate on country, which is like the next step, the physicality, you know? And, uh, and so now you could have that Nigerian Hamilton or that Estonian Washington or that, you know, Indian Franklin or what have you, right? That person might be there somewhere in the world, that amazing political founder, that president of a network state, and so there's a really important like equality of opportunity aspect of this as well, where I don't believe that, you know, like that 2% of the world necessarily has all the most talented folks. I think there's probably, you know, a lot of great talent outside of that. And now we can let them shine. So unlike other people I've heard interview you, I don't want to push back on the concept. I will actually sure. want to push forward and ask you sure. how, how we do it. How, how we, we get do this done. And what I want to, and I'll give you, you know, I'll tell you, first of all, just thank you for making me feel less crazy. Um, I'll, I'll, a, um, you know, look, I'm an American. I moved to Europe a long time ago. I've, I've um, you know, and I, what I've realized, and I've been, I've been working, you know, on the internet since 1990. And what I realized a long time ago is that we live in these, in these parallel worlds, that um, I'm spending my time and attention in a world which is effectively borderless, um, yeah. you know, upwards of eight to 10 hours a day in this borderless world. Yet, you know, I am, I'm sort of bound to the bordered world, right? I'm, I'm under the tax regime of both France and, and the U.S., um, you know, these countries decide, you know, who in my family can can move borders when, um, you know, and and, uh, you know, and, and, you know, I'm trying to put these two things together, trying to understand how is it that we, uh, you know, I always use the analogy that, you know, my, my dad, who was, you know, probably the, the Indiana that my dad grew up in was much easier to elect someone who represented the ideals of, you know, that small county in Indiana when my dad was a kid than today, when it, when you've got richer, rich, poor, poor. It's 30% Hispanic. And um, we live in this parallel universe where, you know, if I if I knock on my neighbor's doors and tell them, you know, that I want to go down to Walmart and shoot people, they'll probably call the cops. But if right. I go on Facebook and I tell them I want to go to Walmart and, and you know, and, and shoot minorities, I find 100 people that will say, <laughs> do it, bro. You know, and how yeah, do we right. govern in those two parallel universes that we live in? This is something that I've been, you know, right. thinking about for a long time. So, so and I'll, 
And so, yeah, so anyway, the, the network say, but my question then is, how do we actually get there? Because even though you and I live these, we have exited, right? We're both Americans who are not living in America anymore. Um, we do spend a lot of our time and attention in these borderless worlds, yet, you know, the, 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 the laws, um, you know, that, that govern us are, are still coming from, from these geographic worlds. So how do we get, you know, and, and, and isn't there a lot of pain between, as, as you say, you know, we've gone from, from God to state and now to network. Isn't there yeah. as much pay, pain for humanity between state and network as there was between God and state? Sure. Well, so first is one thing I want to say is I mentioned earlier, you know, you can have a social network that crowdfunds territory and eventually attains diplomatic recognition. It's the last step that people feel the most dubious about. They're like, how will it attain diplomatic recognition? And I'll give 10 examples or like about that number. Tuvalu and Columbia did deals with GoDaddy for the .tv and .co domain name. Wyoming, the U.S. state, uh, has worked uh, you know, with the Ethereum blockchain to recognize DAOs. The mayors of Miami and New York have accepted Bitcoin as salary. Uh, the state of Virginia did a deal with Amazon for HQ2. The state of Nevada did a deal with Tesla for the Giga factory. El Salvador and the Central African Republic think of Bitcoin now as a national currency, right? So that's several examples where cities, U.S. states, and entire sovereign countries have done deals with companies and currencies. And so it doesn't actually, you know, sovereigns are now actually open for business to an extent that's greater than people think. And so it's not that crazy to think that the land could do other deals with the cloud. You know, the state could do deals with the network because they're already happening. So that relationship is not always adversarial, right? So what you want is something that has just enough economic mass that it can be a win-win and crucially, not just economic mass, let's call it political mass, where I think Patrick Friedman had a good point where he, you know, just like, uh, for example, it is not that uh, Bitcoin started in, let's say, Germany and Germans migrated all over the world to set up Bitcoin exchanges and there were Sprechensi Deutsch, you know, everywhere, right? That wasn't, that wasn't it. What happened was um, Americans who held Bitcoin set up American Bitcoin exchanges and Germans who held Bitcoin set up German Bitcoin exchanges and Japanese people who have held Bitcoin set up Japanese Bitcoin exchanges. And so, so there were like dual citizens everywhere that were like Bitcoin slash American or Bitcoin slash Japanese or Bitcoin slash Indian, right? And so it was a bridge where they had, um, you know, they're like bicultural, almost like an immigrant. They had, they had a foot in both worlds, right? So uh, the point being that I think that the relationships between the cloud and land, between the network and the state are not always adversarial. There are, all, there are people who will have sort of just like you're, uh, you know, a Polish American and you've kind of have some degree of cultural fluency in both cultures. You have, you're like a, somebody who's a Bitcoin American, you've got fluency in both, right? Okay. So now... And, and ultimately what happens is the land makes deals with, with the network so that, you know... Yeah. For example, you know, what the way I could, you know, and many people that we know are moving to somewhere like Portugal because it's advantageous and, right. and they sort of support our network life. That's right. So there's there's both comp. It's more interesting and complex than simple competition. There's competition and cooperation, and you know, and there's land and cloud fusions versus other land cloud fusions, and so on. Right now, so that's like a, one broad point. But then to your specific point, which is you know this borderless world and how do I think about it? Well, I, I think it's like V one, V two, V three, where you know V one we had these offline borders, which were basically arrived at by the way after a ton of fighting, huge amounts of fighting. Enormous amounts of fighting. Now you have these borders. Everyone's, huh, huh. for a while, you know, they're within the borders. Then people forget about the fighting that led to them in the first place. 
And then what happens is this cloud Atlantis comes down, right? This new continent. And at first, it's just a few wisps of cloud. How many people are online in 1990? 2000, by the year 2000, it grows a lot, but then dot-com crash and it shrinks. By 2010, I don't know, it's maybe an hour a day per person, like in Western countries. By 2020, billions of people are spending hours a day in the cloud. Many people effectively, they wake up and they telecommute up to the cloud and they do their work there and their socialization there and then they come back down. And maybe, you know, for example, if you're online, eight out of 16, and if, for example, if you're looking at a screen, whether it's a mobile phone or it's your Fitbit or Apple Watch or your laptop, right? Or iPad or something like that. Many people, that's more than like eight hours a day, right? What, what percentage is that of your waking life? In that ballpark, exactly. right? Yeah, exactly. Exactly. So that means eight, most eight, of your waking... 10 hours a day for, for, for many, many, many people. Many, many people, right? So most of your waking hours are spent in the cloud, right? In the cloud, in the, in the borderless world. In the borderless world where you are adjacent to people who are not the same as your physical neighbors, typically, right? These are your ideological neighbors, your mental neighbors. These are your friends on social networks. These are your people in your Slack. These are, you know, this... But yeah, I think I know where you are right now, but I don't actually know because we didn't talk about it and I mean, it doesn't matter. It's irrelevant. It doesn't matter, but point. yeah, exactly. Right. So, so point being, you know, we may be far apart on the earth, but we're near each other in the cloud. It's got a different geography, right? Yes. It's like, you know, far apart on the X axis, close together on the Y axis. Right. So what's my point? Point is that, um, this actually isn't a truly borderless world. What it is, it's something where 4 billion people have been dropped into it in this sort of kind of free fire zone. Like Twitter is like this giant, you know, melee, right? And individual people can put up blocks or you can have slacks that have logins or things like that. Logins are your way of setting up borders there, right? You know, NFTs, anything that is crypto gated is a way of setting up sort of digital borders. And what I think you eventually get in the fullness of time is new communities arise in the cloud and then they become reflected on the land and drive a wave of mass migrations, right? And that I actually talked about even 10 years ago in this article called Software is Reorganizing the World. Um, and I think it holds up fairly well. Uh, you mass know, there's physical a, there's migrations, you mean. People moving the way that you and I have moved and relocated ourselves. You know, and again, thank you for making me feel less crazy. Something I said a, a number of years ago, maybe not 10 years ago, but, but close to it is, you know, the only outcomes I see are either global government or we all um, relocate to reflect our ideals. And the example I always right. use is a ski town where you couldn't elect someone you know, to represent the ideals of Elkhart, Indiana, even the 150,000 people where I grew up. You probably could in a ski town. You know, right, I mean, right, if you right. get the analogy, right? Because everyone's, yes. you know, not everyone, there but everyone's there yeah. for they love the outdoors. They love skiing. Like there's a, there's a reason that people relocated to that physical place. Uh, that's right. And the, and the person there who's like the retired gold medalist at the Olympics is like the natural shelling point for the mayor or something like that, right? Exactly. You know, or, you know, whatever, college champion, something like that, right? So, uh, you know, this article I wrote literally about almost 10 years ago, Software is Reorganizing the World, I think holds up quite well today. And I think it'll hold up better in 10 years, right? Which is essentially talking about how the nation state doesn't match our states of mind, you know? The, these borders do not reflect, there, there isn't cultural, the, the underlying assumption is that of the nation state is there's a piece of territory and people with, who live near each other share culture and therefore will agree on law. And so therefore proximity, geographical proximity is the right way to implement law. 
That is actually now being broken. Seems like a very obvious thing. It's such an obvious premise, but it's no longer obvious because now it's ideological proximity and computational proximity that means shared law. Now, the thing is, humans are still geographical creatures. So if you're around a lot of people who just radically disagree with you, that's just enormous amounts of wasted time. You can't get economies of scale in the physical world. You only live in your apartment. The, the, the built environment doesn't reflect your values. So that's why I do believe you will go to the cloud, find your people, return to the land in this giant churning process that will reprice real estate all around the world over the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years. I, to be, I, I completely agree with you. I would love to, I have a bunch of loaded questions to follow on with this, and, but we have limited time, so I'm gonna push them a bit because there's a sure. couple other big concepts I wanna be sure that we get to, specifically Great. around crypto and crypto wallets. You know, I, I've, I've heard you say that, you know, blockchain is probably the most important development in history since the advent of writing itself, which is quite Yes, I was a little more precise. Cryptographically verifiable history is to written history as written history was to like oral history. Correct. I, and, and, I, and I understand, you know, what you mean by that. And what I'd like to explore specifically is, um, you know, the role that you believe that will play in, in history, because I do think it's largely underappreciated, right? If you look at, um, you know, what's going on in the world this week, and maybe we should, we should touch on that a bit at the end. But, you know, I think people still, you know, vastly underappreciate it, think of it as, you know, sort of a speculative shell game, and, and, they, and they don't understand sort of the, the importance of what, you're, of what you're getting at there. But I, I want to kind of try to build on, on two separate things and get your opinion on it. I really think that, you know, the, the internet um, that we've lived through the last 20 years is this revolution of information. And blockchain is pushing a revolution of value. And it's those two things on top of each other that, that bring us to a network state, right? Because we have um, these open borders of communication and, and the cloud, as you say, plus, um, you know, the provability of, um, of value, trade, identity layered on top of that, that allows you to actually build an economy, build a, build a community. Does that, you know, does that ring true what am i what, what am i missing there when i when i say that and you know so well, in think, other words yeah are those two are those two innovations tied you know sort of the internet which is this information revolution and the blockchain which is this value revolution they are um let me let me just say two things first is on the verifiable history part you know obviously there's a huge difference between written history versus oral history and with oral history people's memory might fail there's a game of telephone it's not digital it's not precise gets passed down as a legend. Um, you know, it's obviously, you know, if you, the game of telephone, right? Whereas with written history, you just have a document and you can copy it exactly word for word and no one, you know, like precision isn't lost, right? You're much more precise in writing. And so it's because of written history that we know anything about ancient Rome because no one is from, you know, around to give the story, right? Um, we didn't have audio or video recordings, right? So written history is this massive step forward. But written history could be fake in various ways, right? Um, and uh, or it could be, you know, Salma Berger has this concept of like uh, dark dark matter, where a good chunk of, you know, we only know like a small percentage of ancient Rome or ancient Greece. Many of we estimate, you know, huge chunks of those records were lost, right? You know, Library of Alexandria, for example, burned or what have you, right? So even in recent history, you've known news reports that are written down but fake, right? And so then cryptographically verifiable history starts to have not just um, like who sent what Bitcoin to whom, but proof of who via digital signature and proof of what via hash, proof of when via timestamp. And then you can extend it to things like proof of solvency, 
or proof of reserve, which people are doing now for exchanges, proof of identity, you know, that somebody is who they say they are and whatnot. All these proof of X, proof of Ys, and often what you're doing is you're basically figuring out um, a way to turn something into something that's expensive to fake. And now you've got something where a future historian can look back on that and they can do the math because that echoes across time. And they can say, well, this would be at least expensive to fake. There's a few other possible explanations that are consistent with this, but this helps me nail down what actually happened. Particularly if you have not just like a few people who are digitally signing events, but you think about all the stuff that's happening on social media, billions of events per day, you know, every email, right? Every weather channel report, every IoT device, all of that will eventually have to be digitally signed because otherwise it could be AI faked. And when it gets digitally signed, it becomes part of crypto history. And when it goes on chain, it becomes part of publicly indexable crypto history. So now you think about the history of society in terms of all these skeins, all of these threads, millions and millions, billions of threads of like these streams of information that you just collect into one arm. And that is actually the history of that society. This, you know, it's like we didn't have history until this. Everything we had before was like, imprecise. It wasn't, a, it wasn't like the full thing like this. Eventually you get, you know, for example, people's blood pressure and other kinds of things. So if you're recording fitness data, now, of course you want to record this in a privacy preserving way with zero knowledge. But if you want to really adjudicate, for example, if the Romans suffered from lead poisoning, this is the kind of thing you might be able to do if you had longitudinal health data on them in some privacy preserving queryable way, right? You could actually figure that type of stuff out, right? So, so just like in you know in two thousand, that you know, you and I knew that that the internet was going to be big and something that would be a part of the average person's life. But there were many people who said, "No, it's not. Uh, that's yes. not for me." Oh, many, many, many. I'm not a yes. I'm not a techie. I'll never have an email address. I don't need one, right? Yep. Would you say that that's the same today? There are many people that say, you know, digital digital collectibles, NFTs, cryptocurrency. It's bullshit. It's 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 not for me. Yet we're gonna you know fast forward fifteen years and that person's passport will be a digital document and the way that they yeah, and they'll, move they'll between also, borders is proving they're the owner of the wallet that contains that document. Is that the world we're headed for? They'll also kind of rewrite history in their head to say, oh yeah, you know, like I was always in favor of that or is obviously useful or something. And that's why, you know, people who are wrong in that kind of way will never admit they're, they're or maybe they'll admit they're wrong once, which is rare, but they're not going to admit they're wrong a thousand times and that they hurt the thing as it was getting off the ground and so on. The only thing you can do is make a thousand x the money and then fund people who are right. <laughs> you know, you you basically coming back to my question about talking to the technical. Yeah, exactly. Like that's the thing is you just you you eventually learn that those folks who are wrong, if they still have their positions, they weren't paid to be right. They were paid to replicate power, right? In the sense of when you publish a fake story, at, you know, and you're a journalist and they publish a fake story, if it serves power, they don't lose their job. Hey, who could have known? You know, hey, Aaron was saying this at the time. It's a school of fish strategy where they all move at the same time. And so no one person could be singled out because they're all wrong at the same time. And then, it, you know, for example, the lab leak theory was a total conspiracy theory. And now it's like within the Overton window. And, oh, who could have known, right? All this opinion shifts, but a thousand people shift at once. And so you can't hit any one of them because other 999 also shifted, right? And that actually, that strategy works if you are mediocrity. <laughs> it won't work. If you want to actually do something innovative, you have to break from the school of fish. But if you break from the school of fish, you also have downside as well as upside, right? So 
And I, but I will ask you this. I think that you and I both believe that this will happen. I'm curious how you think it, how you think it'll happen. And, ah, you know, well, mechanics, again, I spent the, right? I spent yeah. the first, well, I spent the first, you know, 20 years of my career in digital music. So I remember when, you know, ripping CDs meant like going to the DOS command line. And, you know, now you say, you know, you, you talk about this in your book, the unbundling and, and, and rebundling of this particular asset. Now you say, you know, hey, Siri, play the Beatles and the Beatles comes out of your phone. Right. And, and Siri's actually trying to do that to me right now. The, um, you know, so there's something here, too, where, you know, um, those people who you got into Bitcoin with the Stanford paper um, way back when, you know, probably a lot of them <laughs> lost their, you know, lost their seed phrase, lost that lost that Bitcoin they had in those early days because the user interface was so bad. And, you know, but but again, I think if you fast forward 15 years, the way we cross borders will be using our digital passports. So, yes, I'm, I'm curious, right. you know, what in your view, you know, and, uh, how, how do we get there? I think you and I, uh, you know, correct me if I'm wrong, but agree on on the inevitability of that. But there's a there's a lot of steps between between here and there, which is obviously what we're trying to work on at Ledger. But I'm, I'm curious where you think, well, uh, so, you know, how you think that unfolds. So I think the key to that is. Um, just like Y Combinator had a thousand, you know, startups to get one, you know, stripe, right? Um, I think, you know, we have this thing called, uh, you know, the networkstate.com front slash dashboard. We have, we're tracking like 20 something startup societies now. Maybe there'll be a thousand by 2030. Maybe we'll get our first recognized network state after that. So the pipeline of startup societies is what we want to build. And then some of them will make it all the way through and they'll become fairly large and they'll get there. Because we have now a playbook, which we didn't have before, which is, you know, you start online, you build a community. And the crucial thing, by the way, is when people are joining this community, it's as serious. They're joining it in a serious way. You know, they are not, um, they're not doing so for, um, one way I put it, this is like, I, mean, I could think of a better analogy at some point, but uh, the network state is to meetup.com as eHarmony is to Tinder. Okay, so it's you're seeking a serious relationship with the community, not just, you know, a casual date or a casual relationship, right? Just like eHarmony is like a serious relationship with an individual versus like Tinder is like a casual date, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, so that's actually an interesting, like sort of empty spot on the internet community map. There isn't the concept of seeking a serious relationship with a community, right? Even when you move to a town, if you know somebody there, that's an accident. You're not like applying to the town. You know, the only thing that's close to that is applying to a college, right? And so, what I do think is that at age 18 in the future, people won't apply to a college; they'll apply to a country or a crypto community. By like 2030 or 2040, that is going to be like the coming. What is the best crypto community I can get into? Not exactly the same as a company, because. Everybody in this crypto community has jobs from different places. It's, they're, they're maximizing a KPI that is not simply money. Yes, the economic health of their community needs to matter, but like the difference between Japan and France is not simply money. There's baguettes and pastries or whatever here, and there's like amazing sushi over there. Like those are interesting things that are not simply money. Money is fine. Money is good as a tool. But you talked about earlier, like what you know underpins all this. And look, I'm all into economics, capitalism. Fundamentally, what we want is a high trust society. Right. And, and that's the thing where you kind of end up rebuilding some borders because not everybody's a high trust actor. You're going to want to filter in the same way that 
The New York Times won't just let anybody into their company. Harvard won't just let anybody in. You have complete moral authority to be at least as selective as those institutions are in whether you let people in or not, right? The moment there's open borders for Harvard and anybody can just walk in and be a full student there for free, then you can listen to them when they talk about, oh my God, all borders are bad, right? Um, in practice, what, what people generally want is, uh, it, it's kind of like uh, people are elitist when um, they're choosing and they're egalitarian when being chosen. For example, when you're being chosen, you don't want anybody, you know, making any, you, know, you definitely don't want anybody discriminating against you, canceling you, anything like that. When you're choosing though, do you want the mediocre hospital for your kids? Or do you want, uh, do you want a random link from Google or do you want the 10 best links, the number one best link, right? Uh, you know, so when it comes to things that matter, you know, when you go to the, the store, do you just pick a random thing on the shelf or are you picking the thing that seems like the best price performance? Right? When you're in the choosing seat, you're being an elitist, you're looking for the best price performance. When you're being chosen, you're an egalitarian, and those are two different things, right? And similarly, when it comes to borders, you don't want to be, when you're, when you're being chosen, you don't want to be blocked from entering any country. You don't want any border to constrain you. You want to be able to travel the world like a hunter-gatherer. I'm very sympathetic to that, okay? On the other hand, if it's your house, if it's your company, if it's your community, if it's your university, you want to maintain some selectivity, some prestige, some admissions criteria, some values, some shared values. If everybody comes in, then you're mixed with, uh, it's like a, in chemistry, it's like dynamic equilibrium, right? You have, you're not distinct from your surroundings, you know? And, um, you know, then, then there's no distinction between the inside and the outside. It's exactly the same mixture, right? So, so there's a balance between those where uh, that doesn't mean like borders are always good or borders are always bad. People will favor borders. You know, for example, there's another border, the border around your wallet. You know, do people want anybody to be able to get into your wallet? There's a border around your information. Do you want anybody to be able to get into your data? And then that extends the, the data of your community, the wallet of your community. Now you've rebuilt borders again, right? Um, you know, your block list, all this type of stuff, right? So the border thing is actually quite important and quite sophisticated and worth thinking about and talking about because ultimately people want borders that reflect their true societal values, right? You know, people who work at the NYT or they work, you know, they work for Salzburg at the New York Times or they, they're at Harvard, their true community are other Harvard people or other NYT people. Watch them yell if you say, give Harvard degrees to everybody. They're all in favor of redistribution of wealth, but not redistribution of Harvard PhDs. That you're earning, right? Not the wealth, right? So they're nationalists for their nation, which is not like America, but it's like Harvard, right? And once you kind of see that, you're like, okay. Well, you know, internationalism in a rational way is not just being totally self-interested, especially not unconsciously self-interested like this. It's being enlightened self-interested where you are winning, but you're also helping win. Yes, you have your border, but you also have a door and you have some way to interact and you have a positive something and you allow the other person to maintain their kind of thing. And you've got like two Slack communities or you've got two subreddits. And, you know, it, there's actually something good about each person or each group having their own thing. And you have full flourishing there versus the Twitter style massive online arena where everybody's just shooting each other. And I, I guess I'm, where this leaves me is, you know, wondering, you know, I'm trying to picture how this plays forward. It's interesting what you're saying about inclusion. Like you look at something, a mem you know, a membership community like Proof that Kevin Rose started, um, you know, actually 
uh, you know, the, the, there isn't really an interview process. It's just expensive to get in, right? Um, you know, the, the barrier to getting into to proof is buying the token. Uh, if you look at something like FWB, uh, FWB actually does have an interview process. And even if you hold the token, you might not be able to get into the community and people do get, get rejected being a part of that. I mean, these are, these are very early kind of, you know, um, you know, cultural things, but again, people take them quite seriously, whether it's, you know the time they spend there, or the money that they money they the money they spend getting in, and I'm I'm trying to imagine and play forward, you know, where this goes, and also thinking about the role that that you know crypto blockchains and and wallets play in this, um, because the wallets you know ultimately store our identity, um, and they and they rec- and they are the proof, right? They're the proof of they're the proof of belonging, but also the proof of behavior, right? Is that the is that the role that wallets play in these network in these network societies going forward? Yeah, basically your crypto resume. And and how do, how do you imagine privacy working in in that world? You started by zero by knowledge. Talking about, uh, so exactly. meaning so selective selective revelation. For example, right now we've got something called view keys or viewing keys in Zcash and Monero, right? You know everything is by default private, but you can give view keys that allow, for example, an auditor or an exchange or something like that to view one transaction or a set of them, right? So it starts just like for example your Google Doc is by default private to the world, but you can grant, poke a little bit of hole and give edit access or view access to somebody, right? You're opening a hole. In yeah, that if, point, I'm, if, I'm, right? if I'm going to a club, you need to know if I'm 21 or not. You don't need to know my name and address. Yeah, yeah, exactly. So now then the question is, all right, view keys give all this information. What if you only need a few things and then zero knowledge gives only that bit of information and then it is set up to not allow any other information leaking. You can prove this and only this, right? And so, um, so the answer I think is, you know, it's zero knowledge, it's viewing keys, it's something called secure multi-party computation, maybe homomorphic encryption. Um, there's various ways of doing computations that are privacy preserving while still, you know, uh, getting, you know, the results that you want. I'm, I'm curious how you think, um, you know, the, the sort of the, I don't, I, I think that, that these network states will often come in conflict with states and, and how you think those conflicts will play out. You know, what question I have for you is, you know, isn't, uh, you know, we talk about, um, you know, I think you've said that, that there isn't one that has diplomatic uh, recognition yet, but isn't anonymous, you know, a network state, which is, which is recognized as, uh, you know, as at war with, you know, with, with the Russian government as an example, or is that not, not the kind of thing that, that you mean? Yeah. I mean, the thing is that like Bitcoin and Ethereum have managed to protect hundreds of billions of dollars over now many years without militaries across borders. Right, that's the kind of thing that people fight over for sure. Right, you know, someone loses a billion dollars, it's a massive thing. Lawsuits, a million dollars, massive thing. People shoot each other over, you know, robberies for thousands of dollars. Right, so enormous amounts of wealth. The kind of thing that people fight over is being protected by Bitcoin and Ethereum. So everything, all digital forms of wealth, stocks, gold, of course, digital gold, but stocks, bonds, commodities, all those can eventually be represented on chain. Will be represented on chain. It might take time for the existing establishment to age out, just like it took time for the internet. But you know, in 10 years, 5, 10, 15 years, like, of course, obviously you'll do it all on chain. You have a programmable company. Why wouldn't you do it that way? And then with smart locks, you can actually extend that blockchain to the physical world, the lock chain, haha, right? Where with ENS or something like that, you can use that to, to unlock your Tesla or your house or the locker, you know, storage locker to get your stuff. Or a door, right? And so basically any, you know, or, or, a, or a tractor, right? Um, a robot, any piece of, uh, any capital asset 
can have a smart lock attached to it. Any piece of real estate can have a smart lock attached to it. I'm not saying all property, like the clothes on your back, a cup of coffee won't have that. But let's say all property that matters, right? 90 whatever percent of global value is all stocks and bonds and so on, plus all real estate, plus all cars and capital equipment. It's probably something like 90% of all property in the world can be secured by the blockchain without violence. Pretty big deal. Now, yeah, you could hotwire the car in theory, but that's like not that easy to do, right? You might break the glass to get into an apartment building, but are you gonna be able to go up the elevator without the smart lock? You're gonna climb the, the elevator shaft like Spider-Man? Not that easy to do, right? Possible, but it's like, you know, way, way, way easier to just have the, the key card and have everything work, right? Um, so, so that just shows how far you can take nonviolent property with cryptography, right? And then moreover, um, you know, decentralized defense, which is what the network state is about, is in part putting obviously property in the cloud, but it's also distributing people over thousands of places. Could you invade Bitcoin? No, you couldn't because there's Bitcoin holders all over. Where are they even at? You don't know. You don't have a map, right? You know there's some miners here and some companies there, but most of the map is hidden and it's dynamic. That's what a network state is like, right? It can choose to reveal as much as it wants and it can reveal at whatever, it can use the viewing keys and the selective privacy thing. Those folks who have the right NFTs can see it and those who don't need to don't have to. They could do zero knowledge proof of whatever they want to show to the outside world, right? So you get defense through cryptography, you get defense through physical decentralization, you get defense through, um, you know, just invisibility, right? Uh, you get, um, you know, that's already there, like qu quite a few different layers. So it starts to be, and then also defense just through cost and effectiveness. How hard is it to send SWAT teams all around the world to, you know, all these places to get the permissions to go and land, you know, Marines here and there? I mean, maybe you could do it. It's a big logistical effort and it's expensive, right? And uh, you need a real beef to do that. And you can't do that every single day over and over again. You can't get all the permissions to do that, right? So, Some countries so what, do you think, what do you think happens in, instead, right? I mean, because... So it's know, for, all information. Think, and, and, do, and I guess do nation states and, and network states always coexist then? Or? Well, what, what, basically what it is is something... I'm not saying there's no conflict, but I do think that slotting it into the previous world is a little bit like saying... Uh, for, for example, there's this, uh, it's, it's apocryphal, but there's this famous quote from Laplace. Uh, and, you know, <clears throat> this, is, this is apocryphal, okay? Because I don't think Napoleon was that religious. But supposedly, um, Napoleon met Laplace, you know, the mathematician. Uh, on being asked by Napoleon where God fitted into his mathematical work, Laplace quite correctly replied, Sire, I have no need of that hypothesis. <laughs> okay and uh that's kind of what i'm saying which is like of course from today's standpoint you know you don't need god in the laws of physics to make the laws of physics work but at that time you know and again napoleon was actually relatively secular i guess arguably right you know it's obviously part of you know the whole french revolution just happened but like newton was certainly very religious and not having god in your writing you had to say all various things about god in your writing about physics because people just assumed that of course the god would be involved the church would be involved somehow so how does it right and that is similar to when people are like well where's the guns and where's the military and where's the state and where's this right now, with that said, obviously religion well, that's hasn't That's my gone point, away. actually. The Crusades were still, you know, the printing press brought us 300 years of religious warfare. It's exactly, you know, 
yeah, well, the Crusades. I'm not saying there's I, not know, a before, during, and after, but I'm saying that that will probably be a part of 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 humanity as this as part of this move from God to state to network. And I just for the for yes, the listeners, but, well, I, so I want to put that concept out there because I think it yes, it, it helps but, people when I try to explain this to people. The, sure. the move from God to state to network is actually it helps we'll people have get conflict. their head around I, that long arc. I, I agree that there will be some. Okay, one thing, just a small thing, but like the Crusades came before the printing press. It was you're thinking of like the Thirty Years' War and so on. It's true the printing mm-hmm. press led to British wars, but not not the Crusades. But um, the onto your onto your the thrust of your point though, uh, yes, I'm not saying I'm not saying there's not going to be any conflict between the cloud and the land, but I think the form of that conflict is different than what a lot of people are envisioning. It's just. Lots of social media bickering and deals and laws and migration and it's largely virtualized conflict. For that looks in some ways like American polarization, right? Which isn't really that much in the way of what we think of as war with huge mechanized formations, because there's nothing to hit in the physical world, right? You're basically like getting mad online at people and doing things like this. It has to actually work in the digital world. So sort of it's like obligate virtualization. And I don't like online cancellation or yelling or whatever, but relative to Stalingrad, you'd have to prefer it, right? Now, again, there's exceptions to this. I think you can argue that what comes after Stalingrad is actually drone war. And of course, the Russo-Ukraine war is a very conventional land war. That doesn't go away completely. In many ways, China is sort of probably the, the main proponent of that sort of 20th century throwback approach in this century, right? Giant yeah, land power, I, right? Go ahead. That was what I, I wanted to ask you is, um, and, and really in the, in the very limited time we have left, if, you, if we would touch on two things. One is China. Um, I yeah. think, you know, again, I, I feel like the network state is in many ways um, an answer to Dalio's latest book where, you know, Dalio is, is sort of pointing at the, the, the rise and fall of empires and, and after the rise and fall of the, of the Dutch, British and U.S. empires, then what should come next is the rise of the Chinese empire. But in, I feel like in some ways the network state is, you know, how might technology change that outcome? Um, you know, do you agree or disagree with that? And how does, you know, what China is prioritizing now, you know, put them into this, into this future of, you know, network states, um, you know, and, and, you know, blockchain, crypto, et cetera. Yeah, so China is the exception that proves the rule. Uh, it may be the one legacy nation state that um, just kind of saw the internet and everything and took all the hits necessary to armor it up against that. For example, social media just asserted control over that very early on. Just culturally, they just maintained root over everything. So they may be the one thing that just kind of sticks through this entire volatility by taking a bunch of hits to maintain total stability, right? India, I think, also maintains territorial integrity, um, but it's also more global. A lot of people kind of go around the world. And there's various aspects of that. Like India and China went through, you know, decades, centuries of, you know, civil war and or partitioned and or, you know, socialism or communism. And so now they're kind of on their unification arcs. But a lot of the rest of the world kind of breaks up. And so I think China is an interesting, I mean, it's very important. It's the exception to many rules. Um, you know, the Chinese drone armada will probably be a pretty big thing in, in five or 10 or 15 years um, because they've got all the factories. And, uh, you know, in many ways for the U.S., what the U.S. is doing is it's picking a fight with its factory, which I'm not sure is being thought through. You know, they can just screw you by holding back the screws. And, uh, you know, they, they're not talking about blocking the future. They're talking about blocking the present. And they could do so via a COVID lockdown that has a deniability to it. Oh, 
guess what? You know, the city's under COVID lockdown and it's not shipping your crucial screws and now you're screwed in Ukraine or what have you, right? That's like, there's a million ways that they could do that because you, are you really sure that every single part that's being used in Ukraine and every supplier that supplier, nothing terminates in China? Are you really sure about that? I don't think most people know their supply chains to quite that level. Their supply chains aren't on-chain, so to speak, right? They won't be for a yep. while until people are paying on-chain in the first place. So with that said, I don't, you know, it, we'll see how expansionist China really is. I do think that um, it's going to be pretty powerful in its own zone. I don't, I don't, I'm not like a big supporter of the theories of like instantaneous Chinese collapse or anything. We'll see. Uh, net is, there's a lot of things I'm rationally ignorant about with respect to China because I don't live there. I do think that, the country has gotten. I mean, you have to. You have to understand just how much richer it has gotten since 1978. It didn't just. It wasn't just handed to it. It built this gigantic country and built up huge capital reserves. And um, it, they've they've accomplished a lot, right? They're not just folks who you can cut them off from America and they're just going to fail and starve or whatever. You know, some people are. I think are you know, a little too bearish on them on. Um, I do think that, you know, one way I've put it in the book is I think there's three, by 2025, 2030, I think it's already shaping up. There's just three major poles for the next few decades. And those are NYT, CCP, BTC, right? The dollar economy with a source of truth being the New York Times. Um, the digital yuan economy with a source of truth being the Chinese Communist Party. And the Web3 crypto economy with a source of truth being Bitcoin. And those three are billion person pools of capital and technology that each sort of fight amongst themselves. Anyway, I've talked about this a little bit in the middle of the network state. I'm going to update this for V2. Awesome. I wanted to ask you, um, speaking of, of kind of that information Last question. War, I've, got to, okay, I've got to wrap. I know. Okay. Speaking of that, of that information war, um, Elon, Elon Twitter, right? I mean, is, did yeah. Elon just elect himself uh, the president of a network state? Um, I know it's different. It's slightly different than that. But Elon, with his 115 million followers, that would make him, I think, the 13th largest country if that was his constituency behind, right behind Japan, uh, which, by the way, is shrinking where Elon's constituency is growing. Um, you know, what, what's, what, don't, am I missing something or this feels important in the, in the kind of network state, um, the history of the network state? Well, so, I mean, the thing is people, uh, you know, Clayton Christensen had this concept of disruptive innovation, right? And my, uh, my, my, the holy trilogy of, of innovation. Yeah. The, the, and, the, 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 uh, the innovator's dilemma, uh, the innovator's solution and seeing what's next. Yeah, yeah. And the thing is that he is disruption in this very specific way of um, like, uh, meaning an innovation that was coming in from below and then there's some like complacent, you know, it was like digital cameras and they sucked and then suddenly they were way better than Kodak and they disrupted them, right? But it came to just mean getting your butt kicked by technology, right? And he kind of lost the linguistic battle in it. He had a very specific technical meaning in mind, right? And in the same way, network state, the way I've talked about it in the book is like something that achieves diplomatic recognition. And there's precursor entities that I call like network union or network archipelago, right? But well, that's what I was thinking. I was going to ask you, aren't unions yeah, yeah. the precursor to the network state? Because can you imagine, you know, the, the, the uh, a politician trying to get the FWB block the same way they would get like the teachers union? That seems plausible. Well, so case. that's the thing is basically, I also talk about this in the book, the difference between like a, you know, a one network and an N network. Um, Twitter is not a network state because it's not one community. It's like hundreds and hundreds of communities that all hate each other. You've got like, you know, the Supreme Leader of Iran is on there with CCP members and, 
you know, democratic socialists and U.S. conservatives and, you know, whatever. All, all these different groups that really don't have much in common, certainly don't share values. They use Twitter in the same way they drink water. That's not like a, I mean, every human drinks water, right? So it's not like a useful way of cutting humans, right? Um, and so, so because of that, no, I, 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 so yes and no. So do I think, again, Twitter is like a precursor for a network state? It is a precursor because you might have a thousand network states formed out of it, but it itself is not one because people are not aligned behind values. They didn't opt into a social contract. Elon is not their leader. It's not the kind of thing that would achieve diplomatic recognition. It wasn't built for that, you know, et cetera, et cetera, right? It's like, um, it's something where, I, I, you know, one thing I've been starting to do is talk about recognized network state as a diplomatically recognized network state. So put like a third word in front of it because there's a sort of casual use of it. Uh, you know, Elon taking Twitter is awesome. There's a lot of good things that come out of it. It'll be a much, much better product, but it's a social network, not a network state. The, there is no common community there, and those are different things. But he's, uh, in some ways, he's taken, um, you know, he's, he's privatized, uh, you know, a, a big tool that, that will catalyze these network states. So, Well, I think it's going to be really important. I think, you know, just the fact that it's like a less... Uh, it is a more free zone for speech and organization than it was a few months ago. That's phenomenally important. And it's going to improve dramatically under his watch. And so that's opened up a domain of freedom. He himself is not a huge believer in crypto, but he might have bought us the time that we need to actually build a first network state. So I know you've got to go. Thank you for spending the time. Hope Thank we do you. It again, and uh, I'll uh, hope to see you again soon. Appreciate right, it. Thanks. Okay, bye-bye. And that's it from me and Balaji. I hope the conversation can be your inspiration to go out into the world and start your own society. If you'd like to learn more about Ledger, be sure to check out our Twitter at Ledger and our YouTube channel also at Ledger. This is your substitute host, JJ from Paris. Take care and goodbye. This content is provided for informational purposes only and is the sole expression of our opinion and should not be relied upon as legal, business, investment, or tax advice. Do your own research. Any loss or profit is your sole responsibility. Stay safe.